Radio Morpork, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, rating, reviewing, analyzing, rambling, fawning, critiquing, and various other uh, verbs. Um, Generally talking about mostly. That's talking in a nutshell, covers covers <laughs> all of those in the one neat umbrella. That is the dulcet tones of. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That's incredibly <laughs> off-putting and I'll never be able to forget it. <laughs> That's the dulcet tones of Steve and I'm Colm. Uh, and this week we are talking about Masquerade, the fourth or fifth Lunkera Witches uh, book, depending on whether you count equal rights as one mm. or as kind of Lunkera Witches uh, beta. Yeah. Um, so before we dive into uh, discussing the book in detail, we'll just refresh your memories about the um, about the plot. It goes without saying that uh, spoilers abound from here on in. But uh, Steve, if you want to take us away? I would love to take you away. Um, the story of Masquerade begins when Agnes Nitt leaves Lankra to begin her career at the Opera House. The witches leave to obtain the money owed to Nanny Og by the publisher of her books, as well as to meddle and bring Agnes Nitt home. Agnes Nitt is being used as a backup voice, giving Christine the spotlight. However, during this time, the opera house is being haunted by a ghost. With the money rightfully coerced out of the publisher, Granny Weatherwax pretends to be a rich patron to catch the opera ghost. Near the end of the novel, a member of the Cable Street Particulars, along with the witches, determine that the finances of the opera house are deliberately a total mess to disguise the money laundering going on, and the murders and accidents were caused to distract the manager from investigating the matter properly. It is revealed that there were two people pretending to be the ghost. The original ghost was the janitor's son who wished, who wished to watch the opera, while the second ghost did it to steal the money. Once the matter is resolved, Agnes returns to Lankra to take her place as the third witch. Very good. Ta-da! <laughs> so that's Masquerade in a nutshell. Yeah, as you say, spoiler will abound. But as our usual opening question, Colm, what did you think of the book? I really, really liked it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's maybe it's a thing about like um, read them in order and coming at it after two, but the last two we kind of like had some issues with like interesting times. I think both of us enjoyed it a lot, but you know had it, had it like fair few big had problems. Issues. Yeah, yeah. Soul music uh, was good, like you know engaging, but left me a bit cold on, mm. on other levels. Mm. Um, and this this is just really, really. Uh, Thematically rich without without really pushing it under either. Yeah, just a, yeah, really excellent page turner. Incredibly funny, like yeah. you, you know, uh, particularly like Nanny and Granny are just used so so well to to great effect. And yeah, just the character stuff throughout is is wonderful too. I mean, Agnes uh, makes a great addition to the longer witches. We saw her briefly in Lords and Ladies. And it's funny, again, approaching this in order, Lords and Ladies seems such a perfect mm. finish to the whole, to McGrath's arc, but maybe to just the Bunker of Witches arc in general. Um, so you wonder, you might wonder coming into this, had you not read it, whether it was a mistake to go back to them. Um, but he just really refreshes things by bringing in Agnes. I mean, how many, how many fantasy novels uh, have one of, like... What, how many fantasy novels are there where the lead character or one of the lead characters is a fat teenage girl? Yeah, very, very few. How many fantasy novels are there where the lead characters are a fat teenage girl and two old women? How many <laughs> novels are there when our lead character is Well, there was a prototype Harry Potter novel. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, like, 
it's um yeah so that's just so refreshing to read about but also i think because just uh like agnes stuff is very deftly done and it doesn't feel like um a really on the nose pratchett wagging his finger about like you know teenage self-image issues Mm. and you know uh like young women and weight and so on a lot of stuff's managed quite definitely like he jokes a lot about her uh about her weight Mm. but still manages to kind of make it a like you know show how people's perception of just what she looks like is um colors her opportunities in really select ways or or kind of to a certain extent um it's more about how it colors her perception because you have early on Nanny Og thinking that she'd be a good addition because because of her weight she'd be more likely to remain a maiden for longer mm. but Nanny then also goes on to think about how in the Ramtops a lot of men marry bigger women because they're seen as good cooks and because they're very practically minded people where it's, you know like something is like a skill like uh, good cooking is a really desirable um, yeah. <laughs> quality in a like in a potential wife um and then obviously Nanny herself is described multiple times throughout this as quite fat as well. And she never, she has very few, if any, problems with her own self-image. Mm. And very few problems attracting men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, it seems. all persuasion. So, uh, like, while obviously Agnes is really given the rough end of the stick as regards the, um, the opera, expecting, you know, her to just kind of do all the hard work and let Christine take the credit, it feels like a lot of how she, um, you know, her own self-image and how it affects her confidence does come from horror uh, as much as it comes from outside hmm. uh, one thing I, I really like when we're on that as well and I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here and what characters I'm looking at but I really like that in the first few pages it sort of alludes to her um, her size and things like that and then Granny is the first one to uh, when uh, Nanny goes to her and says do you remember Agnes uh, Nate whoever's daughter and Granny says like fat girl with the good hair or something and I just think there's something so Granny that she mm. cuts through euphemisms and says something that's quite cruel but also apparently from all the books says quite accurate too yeah yeah um, I also love that bit about how was it like uh, her who calls herself paired attacks and, oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a funny funny joke when uh, Nanny ha- thinks that like Nanny respects people's right to change. Like she says, oh, you know, whatever. She wants to be uh, called that, and I, I like that about the kind of, um, you know, that feels, uh, that feels convincing and endearing quality of Nanny Og that she would. Be. I think I think that very much reflects uh, Nanny Og's entire character because at almost I think in every witch's book so far, there's come a point where she needs to, and they address it actually in this book that she blends in so well, no matter where she is. Like you know, it's. She's the kind of person who, if you see her walking around, she must surely belong there. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's one of her inherent skills. One of the few skills that, like, she has that Granny Weatherwax simply can't grasp at all. So it would make sense for her to accept the idea that um, people can uh, change who they are or, like, attempt to change who they are to suit their needs because that's very much what Nanny Og is all about. You know, that's very yeah. much her character. Yeah. I like, too, with the whole like sort of uh, ongoing efforts of Nanny and Granny to get Agnes to, to become a witch like like all of the uh, Discworld books with you know the odd exception Masquerade is quite standalone and that you could read it without having read Lords and Ladies and mm. you know you wouldn't miss all much but it also does play on that if you're reading it having read the other witch books it plays on a lot of the um, expectations like when 
Agnes gets savvy to Granny's thinking where Granny's like, oh, you know, you probably wouldn't want to become a witch anyway. It's really hard work and, mm. you know, you're only good enough. And Agnes says, oh, no, I'm not going to get into that, you know, where I do this to prove you wrong and then I end up doing just what you want. Mm. Uh, and she's sort of, to a certain extent, savvy to some of Granny's headology in the same way that the reader would be at this stage. Yeah. So it would be really frustrating if you saw her kind of, uh, for want of a better hand, fall for things we saw McGrath fall for in the earlier yeah, books, yeah. you know, because it would just feel repetitive. Um, and uh, like I think it, it works too because even though there is a sense of inevitability that she's going to end up coming back and join the witches, her reasons for not joining them feel quite convincing when she thinks about them being kind of lonely, know-it-all women who, you know, it's a very harsh assessment of them, but it's also quite true from what we've seen. So, yeah, you know, and actually, funnily enough, um, it's it's it definitely feels uh, very accurate in this book because something that I never really picked up the first time I was reading it, but more and more when we're reading through the witches books uh, now is I'm finding I'm picking it, picking up a lot on the more human aspects of Granny Weatherwax. Whereas before, like, if you were to, if, before we started doing Radio Morepork, and if you were to, like, ask me, like, oh, why do you love Granny Weatherwax? It's like, oh, she's always right, and, like, she's always confident. She's just a really cool character. But there are a lot of moments in this, and as there were in Lords and Ladies, where she's kind of doubting herself, wondering, you know, um, uh, there's the there's the point where Nanny Og tells um, the troll outside the publisher, is like, this is, uh, you know, the person that in troll language is known as... Um, she who should not be crossed or something like yeah. that and uh the dwarves have a name for her as well it's uh go around the other side of the mountain <laughs> a great great name for anyone but um you see that like it affects her like you, you kind of have it in your head that she's this very stoic i don't care what anybody thinks of me sort of character but you can see that there she has these quiet little moments every now and then where it might not deter her or like significantly from the task at hand but it does actually have an effect she mm-hmm. can she see you can see that like She's not exactly, you know, uh, oblivious to how she's seen by everybody. She's aware that, like, people don't really seem to like her that much. And it's, you know, especially when we go back to Lords and Ladies and the entire fear that she has of becoming this, like, senile, lonely old woman, which the Queen of the Elves kind of exacerbates and puts into a really clear picture for us. With that in mind... All those moments are very... They kind of hit closer to home. Yeah. In in this book. And I'm appreciating it a lot more. And I think this is why I always liked Granny Weatherwax as a character. Because while it didn't necessarily register the first time around, it was always there. It stops her from becoming a really boring character. Because if she was simply this uh, incredibly, like, uh, talented individual who who always has the upper hand, always, she'd be really dull. But... You know, she's actually written in such a way that we will care about her despite that. Yeah, and and I think it works really well here because it it gives her a plot where she can uh, deliberately sort of play up to all that like semi mythic status that the, both the people, to a certain extent, the people who know of her at least in the world have come to expect, and also the readers come to expect from mm. from last few books, and because that's it's it's that easy for her and that gives her kind of room to breathe and room for those character bits to come out like if you think of like uh if we like discount equal rights for a moment which is kind of maybe a really more esque story and it was a kind of yeah. like proto uh version of, of of granny almost a granny nanny amalgamum um like so if you think of the three witches books after the first one granny's facing 
the tyrannical ruler of a country who's tried to kind of use essentially propaganda to turn the population against witches. Mm. The next one, she's facing her sister, who's a really powerful witch who rules this city with an iron fist. And the next one, she's facing this the Queen of the Elves. This is otherworldly threat who, you know, like kind of uh, it's really shit at the fan time for humanity when the elves appear. Like the yeah. threats keep getting higher and higher. And there's nowhere for it to go higher after that really and um, very smartly decides not to do that yeah, in this exactly. one which is great uh, exactly and he gives her something that like Salzella like he's you know she could run rings around him like uh, mm, absolutely yeah and it, it, it the book deliberately actually keeps her away from the whole mystery at the opera house for a long time mm. in fact I think like uh, like even though I said there's a sense of inevitability about Agnes uh, joining the witches it's not till about maybe three quarters four fifths way through the book that Granny or Nanny and Agnes actually exchange a few words. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if they got there any sooner, the plot would be over. Yeah. And yeah, and it, I think it's a mark of I don't know maybe how he's came on as a writer that like one of the frustrating parts about uh, Witches Abroad was that it felt like it took half the book to get to the plot. And while those bits of the witches traveling are really entertaining, mm. they do feel somewhat kind of tangential and a bit indulgent. Yeah, Whereas yeah. this is much more deftly done, you know, yeah. because she's cutting in between Agnes at the opera house and the ongoing plot of the ghost and the, you know, the murders and the uh, financial misdemeanors at the, uh, at the opera house back to nanny and granny getting there. So, when you're seeing Nanny and Granny, you're not kind of you don't have the feeling of like oh well this isn't properly the plot you know just hurry up and get mm. there um, and that's needed because as I said they're at this stage both of them but particularly Granny are just way ahead of the game and would you yeah. know clean up this plot pretty quick and because the book is structured in that way it gives much more of those like character moments you're talking about where exactly she can, yeah um, and actually I found myself contrasting a little bit to um, Witches Abroad because there's a couple of moments. The two in particular that stand out to me are the bits where the the witches go to the Sleeping Beauty castle mm-hmm. and they sort that problem out, and then when they go to the Transylvania prototype village where like uh, the vampire is uh, supposedly you know terrorizing the village, but Grebo takes care of it like really quickly. I think actually just a side note. I think at that point we were talking about what how Carefully interesting <laughs> how interesting it is that like you know the vampire is taking care of, like like that, and like there's an entire book dedicated to vampires later. But um, it was interesting, like, they're all fun bits, but they're just, that's all they are. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not all they are, but that's the focus on being fun. In this book, there's this moment where Na- our Granny Weatherwax meets death. Oh, Which so is good. a wonderful, so good. wonderful scene. Like, it's so, so good. Like, it's, first, first of all, and we have to, like, underline this, great fan service. Excellent fan service, because, like, I think any time we have a conversation about, um, you know, Discworld characters and who's the best, we always talk about, but what if this character messed this character? And I think number one for both both me and you, I think, has always been Veterinary and Granny Weatherwax because it would be so amazing to see those two clash, but I'm glad they never do. But imagine, like, the idea of, like, you know, Death and Granny Weatherwax meeting. Like, I mean, we know what happens and we know that that's fine, but imagine that never happened in the books and then, like, you were like, if uh, someone put the idea to you, like, mm-hmm. what if Granny Weatherwax encountered Death? Holy shit, how would that go? I mean, like, Granny Weatherwax is this amazing character, but Death is Death, you know? He's, like, this universal yeah. being who can basically control anything. But she's so smart and, like, you know, raises a million questions. The entire scene, it's so good as... See, it's not relevant to the plot at all, but it really 
gives you a great glimpse into Granny's character. Again, it has that moment where um, you do get a sense that she is a human character because she is a little bit afraid of death. Mm-hmm. But she's still Granny Weatherwax, so she has that wonderful moment where she blows it, where um, uh, Death says something kind of taunting her, saying, like, I think you're afraid of the darkness. And then she blows out the candle and just, like, waits there. And it's like, that's such a such <laughs> a Granny Weatherwax thing to do, just to show that she's not afraid. It's a brilliant scene. But, um, yeah, like you said, it's not like, you know, stakes aren't that high at this point. It's just a wonderful way to get a good idea of the character and what she's about. Yeah. And it, uh, it tells it a lot about death, too. That I mm. mean, that great thing about, um, she says, I have four queens. And he says, you win, I have four ones. Which, of course, means he has four aces. So yeah. if he wanted, he could he could have won. Um, and that, that's actually, a one, again, another, like, brilliant example of characterization for him. Because at this point in the death, tri- or the death series we're really getting used to the idea that Death is this really playful character who's fascinated by human nature and he's not this um, he's not the Death from Reaper Man who's just all about the drama and efficiency mm-hmm. he's intrigued by the things that like humans do and you can see that reflecting in that moment but it's not too on the nose you know yeah and I think I think what's interesting about the t- t- thing too is that it plays off a certain it, it could go either way we're at the start of the book Granny's really listless, and this actually continues to sort of trend in the last few Pratchett books. That uh, um, it feels like maybe after Lords and Ladies, which closed the chapter on a certain part of this world, we have this like we have Men at Arms with Vimes is going to retire, and he's wondering what he's mm-hmm. going to do with the rest of his life. We have interesting times where Cohen is looking at his own mortality and trying to make some kind of legacy that lasts longer than just you know a few stolen jewels. And here we have Granny, who's you know. Uh, um, done it all in the kind of witchcraft game and is wondering what else to do with herself mm. and nanny worries about the idea that you know maybe she'd go off she borrowed a head of some animal and never come back um so we're we're already we've had a flagged up for us that the she's more comfortable with her own mortality and kind of bored of life yeah so her risking her life for the life of that child in the card game with death you could read it two ways you could you know you could read it like oh this is ultimately beneath all the hardness and skepticism and grumpiness granny's actually a really good person or you could say "Mm, would she have always done this or is this she can she is she willing to risk it now at this particular moment because death's not such a huge deal to her anyway you know personally i'd like to think it's the former but i do think i do think it's uh it makes it more interesting that that ambiguity is there because it happens in this book at this time where we've been, you know, teased with the idea that she's sort of uh, listless and bored of life anyway. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, like you, I think the former is, like, more believable. But I think it's more... If the exact same scene took place, say, in Witches Abroad, I find it much less interesting than it is in this book because, as you said, her arc is... it, It makes... Her evolution as a character makes that scene more interesting. Just as I said, it's a, uh, it's really good. Um, I'm trying to think now what themes I, I I was taking apart here. Sorry, I just I haven't looked at my books here yet. Or um, oh yeah, I when I was reading it actually, uh, I found myself in a really shallow sort of way thinking initially. I wonder what sort of parallels there are with soul music because they're the only two books that really deal heavily with music at all. And uh, in a way, there's a tiny tiny bit of I'm not going to dwell too much on this because I didn't think there wasn't a lot in this but uh, the only parallel I saw there was the whole extortion of um, you know uh, performers and this is something that comes up in uh, moving pictures as well and it seems to be something that uh, 
Terry Pratchett seems to be leaning quite heavily on. Do you think that's a bit reflective of, um, you know, uh, him as a writer? Maybe that, like, I mean, at this point, like, like his experiences that, yeah, you know, maybe. Um, I think it could be. I've, I've really got to look into this, but I remember saying ages ago that there's like a big gap between Color of Magic and Life Fantastic, and then after that, he's almost into a year. And mm. I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I have a feeling that was on to some like problem with his publisher at the time or really? with his agent and it made me wonder again with Goldberger here is depicted as such a you know a unscrupulous <laughs> character and there are a fair few yeah, jokes about you know who yeah. you can like, sort of expect this of all book publishers <laughs> um, it's actually actually that would make a lot of sense because he really has this venomous disdain for like the publishers what was it that they put all uh, they have that uh, section is it the Isle of Small Gods or something what was the name of the place oh yeah, yeah I think it's the Isle of Small Gods and, and he says like, like prisons watch houses and publishers yeah like so he lumps them in with like criminals basically so it would make a lot of sense that uh, you know this is reflective of his experience with publishers and all so yeah, I, must, I must chase that up and see if there's like you know some, some stories there <laughs> but I, I think the business about the exploitation of performers you're right it, it does it pops up a lot it's all music and moving pictures I think it's a really good thing in this book of contrasting the two worlds of like Lunker and Ang Morpork, where again we go back to uh, the like witches are sort of outside of economy, like Granny or Nanny Og can barely comprehend the much money that she'd be owed by the yeah. publisher, you know, like um, she and she just keeps all her money up like a what is it like a jar in the, uh, in the chimney. chimney, yeah. Um, Granny has that bit with. Uh, is it, or when your man comes in with a bad back and she cures it and she sort of like very uh, facetiously talks about like oh no I don't want any payment but if you've got some of this this and this and it's a kind of almost mm. like a like an arrangement of just like you know mutual gratitude that like it's like for her services rather than actually giving her money or even formally agreeing that like <laughs> okay you have fixed my back ergo this is you know worth me making you a new table or something like that it's more a sense of like oh I'll, I'll give you stuff later down the line you know mm. um it's almost so, like a, a mafia don in, in a way it's like you do me a favor i'll do you a favor sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, <laughs> definitely some parallels there <laughs> but but we see the witches being uh being sort of outside the realm of economy in that way mm. and then we got ang morfork it's like money as it was when moving pictures is such a big thing uh, agnes says that I think Andre is it Andre tells her where she's like asked about why the um the chorus are paid so paid worse than scrubbing floors and he's like well you don't have lines of people queuing up to scrub yeah, floors yeah. Uh, and it's the kind of like that market um you know economy demand um and what else oh there's a bit about uh about Nanny when she has when she's trying to get all the stuff ready for Granny going to the opera with Grebo. Uh, and she goes into the clothes shop and she uh, asks them to get something and they say oh, I won't be ready till next Wednesday and she thinks to herself about how she was learning one of the fundamental laws of you know uh, physics or like more for life that um, if time was money money equals time so <laughs> you know they say oh, it's impossible to have something done you know uh, for a week and then you know, with more money it can be done w- within <laughs> a few minutes um, so I think, think there's a sort of nice contrast that's never really uh, you know, highlighted or said explicitly of Lankra and Angmorpork in that way, and, and the kind of the life of a witch, and then the life of, mm. uh, particularly again, like big part of the book is like uh, ultimately Agnes's choice between the two, and the life of a witch and the life 
in, in the opera mm. like that's another big part of it how one takes you almost outside the realm of economy I mean at the end she's just given McGrath's cottage right like, yeah yeah that's and, it like it's all those yeah. uh, it's yeah sorry, no, whereas, it's, whereas in the opera house she slept in this small room that uh, you know it's just kind of I think rented to her from uh, from the people who run the opera yeah um, and obviously they have the whole well, on the subject of money the whole like um, embezzlement and Bucket trying to can't make head nor tail of the uh accounts in the um in the opera house uh mm. and like bookkeeping seems to be an unknown art in Lunkra and yet it never really bothers them that much in a way that like it it's an issue for for Bucket and the people at the opera yeah it's, and it's, it's interesting that um uh you know Terry Pratchett kind of uh uh he kind of blames uh nanny and granny's reputation on this that like this is how he accounts for the way that people treat each other that like it's it's kind of this fear of uh, nanny and granny but you know that's kind of just a very convenient excuse really when you think about it because um the first time you see them having to actually uh you know negotiate in a way is when they're getting on the car to go to the big city Mm -hmm. that's the first time that they actually have to you know utilize uh granny's headology basically and like you know it's 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 you know, it's not a coincidence, the fact it's the first time they're stepping outside of their comfort zone, going towards the big city. That's when they have to start, like, you know, being a bit savvy. It's not everyone, it's not a case of everyone just treats each other well. It's like, yes, here you have to be on your toes mm-hmm. a little bit. It's it's like soft power versus hard power, whereas mm-hmm. in, like, uh, longer they have soft power of people just know their, you know, their influence and their powers and that you want to keep it on good side, so they end up treating them well without any explicit display of force or power or anything like that and it's mm. when they step outside that they, they've got to uh, go to people like the coach driver and people like Goldberger and show them explicitly this is what I can do to you if you you know piss yeah. me off and that's the thing like they um, I think this is something that like Terry Pratchett's really leaning on heavily in this book because whereas all the problems that Granny and Nanny encounter in Ankh-Morpork could be solved through headology or you know their general uh, charms um, it's interesting that in this particular book, uh, Terry Pratchett comes up with a reason for them to have to use money to solve their problems, and they use money to solve almost all of their problems in this book. And you know, it's 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 really fun the reason or the reason that they come up with uh, them having that much money. Yeah. Uh, Nanny putting up the the sexy cookbook thing, the joy of snacks, the, the joy of snacks, which is great. <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's I really don't think it is coincidence. He's making a very strong statement here of how uh, I think I think he is stressing the idea that there is a better quality. Well, that people treat each other uh, more humanely. In, I don't know if it's just rural areas or maybe it's more of a nostalgic era the thing or nostalgic thing that he's thinking back of people used to treat each other uh, quite well which it's quite natural to associate the rural with uh, you know the past nostalgia that sort of way but um, either way yeah he is definitely trying to make a point about that anyway mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's the bits with the money too are so funny the bit yeah. where uh, granny is inside calculating how much all the money's worth and nanny's uh, I can't remember why she's outside just talking to her he's just like that money doesn't matter to me and then granny says about uh, well that's good Jenna because it comes to whatever it is three thousand something dollars <laughs> and her songs be a real shame to think of all that money mattering <laughs> <laughs> actually I love the fact that um, yeah, uh, nanny Og is constantly saying Oh, money's not that important. Oh, I've always gotten by. And every time she says something, Granny is like, 
underlines the figure, draws a circle around the figure, <laughs> draws another larger circle around the figure. It's a it's a wonderful scene. <laughs> um, if we can go back to the bit about body image, actually, for a bit, because there's something that I found a little problematic, but I, I, I think we kind of need to talk it out to kind of figure it out. I find it interesting that there's a lot of focus on Agnes Nitz's body image and how she's very conscious of uh, the way she looks and how it seems to hold her back. And, you know, the only parallel in terms of characters is Henry Slug, a.k.a. Enrico Basilica. Basilica. Um, and he's this gigantic figure, like, who's, you know, you know, absolutely engorged. But we're never really given any indication that he has any frets or worries about his figure at all. And to make it worse, in a way, at the very end, he gets the girl who he fell in love with, like, from his past. And it's just like, oh, yeah, the, you know, it's Henry Slug. I thought it was you. And they just go off and have a happy ending. It's very not problematic, you know, that... Or it, it's not it's not viewed as like a significant hindrance to him. Do you think that's a knowing thing? Um, yeah, I think partly because it's like all I mean the big just big undercurrent throughout the book about like trying to be what you're not. And again, just went back to lords and ladies where we talked about like just to, like be yourself was a big mm. theme of it. Would sound so yeah, yeah. goofy and glib when you say it like that, but yet it does so wonderfully in the book. And similar here, would you have a uh, like Walter Plange only really becomes himself when he mm. becomes the ghost. Uh, Agnes trying to kind of ultimately is best suited to being a witch, but is trying to run away from that and be something else. And she sort of has to, you know, spread her wings and find out. But like, ultimately, she'd be fooling herself if she stayed in the opera any longer. Mm. She doesn't like it. Um, you know, like Granny and Nanny both adopt disguises. Grebo turns into a human, and while it's convenient for the witches, he clearly isn't comfortable with being something he's not you know he mm. at best finds it boring and at worst uncomfortable as a human um henry slug has to pretend to be foreign to play up to people's kind of idea of what an exotic uh, opera singer should be like andre is an undercover policeman in the opera who actually it turns out is more suited to being in the opera mm. um so like there, there's a thing throughout the whole thing about like the the choices you have to make to uh, to move in different circles, to adapt to different lifestyle, and whether they're really worth it, like whether they're kind of, I suppose, ultimately changing yourself for the better or just hiding or repressing yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I think ultimately it's like the difference with um, uh, Henry Slug and, and Agnes is that like, Apparently, it's like he's obviously comfortable with it. There's a lot of jokes about how fat he is, particularly how much he's eating, which is interesting because while the book jokes a lot about uh, her weight, it, you don't often like. There's no kind of descriptions of her gorging herself on anything no. about her about her being really uh, there's the few, lazy there's the, and things. There's the like odd that. comment about her like eating a lot of chocolate, but it's always in a kind of reflective way. It's it's never like she was eating a lot of chocolate or anything yeah. like that. So yeah, it's um, not so what was I saying? Yeah, yeah, he uh, like so. He he's kind of he's made the butt of a lot of uh, jokes now, but he seems he seems perfectly comfortable with it. And mm. the difference is, I think, like I said, she isn't comfortable with herself, and that's partly like a societal thing where it's kind of uh, doesn't come out and say it, but like where it's uh, you know in, in this particular context, fat men and fat women being treated differently, where mm. he can be a kind of leading man in the opera, and they don't want her being a, a leading lady. Yeah. Um, mm. but it just partly comes down to their characters too. That like, mm. as I said, that we see through Nanny that, you know, 
her weight needn't necessarily Im- impair her uh, confidence the way it does, but for her it does, you know, and kind of her yeah. trying to get past that is just part of her growing as a character. And I think the reason he doesn't have that is because like he's only going to be in this book, and we don't, you know, we don't have to get yeah, him to grow yeah. as a character. His bit about kind of playing up to the foreignness is his uh, journey. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Although I found um, the whole idea of you know becoming something you're not I kind of read it slightly differently it's I felt like um, almost every character in this they uh, they try to embrace a different lifestyle in a way but it isn't so much you know embracing something you're not but accepting that this is a part of your uh, this is a part of your personality but it doesn't uh, define you like uh, for example like Agnes like admittedly she you know she doesn't stay in the opera house but she does have Perdita in her head who yeah. is very much a part of her like the sharp anytime she's kind of sharp, has a sharp tongue with somebody or like she's exceptionally cynical it's generally said in Perdita's voice rather mm-hmm. than her voice and you know it is like it's framed in such a way that it's kind of a dual personality thing but that's just all Agnes really she, it just happens to have a different name on it when she's acting a certain way yeah I'd imagine and it's the same for Granny Weatherwax actually I think because she has this point where she's uh you know, being Lady Esmeralda. And you could say, yeah, that's not her at all. But there is a part of her that it kind of is. Like, uh, there's the moment where she's getting her entire... She's getting her makeup did. <laughs> and, um, you know where uh, the pedicure... Uh, I don't know the name of the person who does things with their feet. That one. Pedicure. It's ma- manicure and... Pe- pedicure. Hands, pedicure. Yeah, and but um, when she takes off her boots and she's I was expecting these, like, you know, corn and uh, bunion-ridden feet, but then there's, like, the most perfect pair, uh, set of feet she's ever seen in her life. And she's like, well, I've got to think of something to do with this. And there's that moment where uh, Granny Weatherwax looks in the mirror and she's kind of like, hmm. But then she kind of sneaks another glance at herself as if to say, like, oh, well, actually, yeah. So there's this slight kind of... Um, there's this aspect of her personality that enjoys the uh, idea of being, I don't know, regal, I suppose, or like, you know, you know, there is aspects of that in her personality anyway, but it comes out in more like, I'm smarter than everybody, as opposed to, I, you know, I'm more, regal is the word I'm using, because it's just the one that comes to mind when she's dressed up as Lady yeah. Esmeralda, but you know what I mean, like, that is an aspect of her calendar, her, or calendar, her aspect of her character her kind of haughtiness that um, she kind of does want to be, you know, just seen as an ar- aristocrat who is just, in layman's terms, is basically someone who just seems better than everybody else, but with no discernible reason why. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're right. I, I mean, I've, uh, but I was being a bit probably trite in just saying, like, this is the team. Mm. Um, there, there is more... Uh, the personalities are a bit more fluid. Yeah, really, they per- particularly with the, the, the lead characters. Mm. Um and it's in the same way that, like, I suppose it's about uh, these, um, like, dipping in these these different worlds and them changing you, but you're not necessarily having to, uh, you know, stay in them the whole time. Exactly, yeah. Them. Like, even again, like, Henry Slug, at the end, I don't know, we don't know, maybe his opera career is ruined now, but it seems to end up well for him where he... Obviously, he got out of this life in the slums, mm. became an opera singer, but had to completely fake a personality. And then at the end, he kind of managed to reconcile it, where he's like, I'm still going to be an opera singer, but I'm going to sing what I want and eat what I want. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. going under my name. And likewise, Agnes, even though, I mean, a very looking at it very cynically, you could see this whole thing as a shaggy dog story where it's like, 
you know, she went away from Lankra to make a new life in Morpork, didn't, and comes back to Lankra doing what she would have Shedden left. But I, I feel she needs this experience of just being independent to a certain degree, of seeing the, the world on her own and um, uh, approaching witchcraft on her terms. It sort of reminds me of, uh, like, like returning um, immigrants, you know, when you, um, as one myself, like, when you, you leave your country and you're living somewhere else and you don't know when you're going to come back, if you're going to come back, uh, and then you do, and you have this anxiety about, like, oh, so is that all a waste? Have I, like, failed? Would I be, you know, mm. is the proper way to do it just by completely making a new life and, and staying over there? But ultimately if those experiences change you for the better and you bring that back home with you after coming, then they're worth it. And I feel like like that's what this is like for her, where, mm. yeah, as you say, she doesn't sort of take on a new character at the opera and then discard it completely and return to her true self in Lankara. It's more like the experience of dipping her toes in that world changes her and then she's able to bring back uh, bring, bring that back to, to Lankara. And the opera is a very interesting setting for that because... If we're being honest, it's not something that many people would say is a part of everyday life. It is something that you would dip your toe in to kind of experience. Yeah. And generally something people would say, oh, well, I'm cultured now. I've been to the opera. That sort yeah. of way, you know, it's it's an experience. For Although the that is a bit of a, I suppose that's kind of um, in our neck of the woods, at least, and probably the same for our listeners in, a, in the States and the UK. But in continental Europe, it's a lot more accessible in places. You'll have operas. It's sure. like uh, we went in uh, Berlin. Berlin, yeah, yeah, yeah. by accident. Yeah. <laughs> great. But but it's sort of like uh, in the equivalent in Ireland will be amateur drama, which is a huge mm. um, community, um, like a lot of the time run by you know whatever, nor like you know people with their own lives and normal things who uh, dip their toes into this world that uh, could be considered quite daunting or you know really sort of high like the high cultural world of theater to people outside it mm. and operas i think is similar in places like italy and germany where you know a lot of villages and small towns will have their own opera houses and people uh, know uh, a lot about them uh, you know normal working people and be compassionate about it. it isn't solely that the realm of the rich but for for uh audiences for readers uh here and the uk and the states yeah it's very much it's a it's it's a world not many of us are too familiar with, mm. and it's depicted absolutely wonderfully. <laughs> you made the, the you brought the, the comparison with soul music um, earlier, and I think what makes this better than soul music for me is that because rock music uh, is much more like largely you know ubiquitous and well known. Don Opera, he could Pratchett did could sort of rely on making these jokes about like you know band name puns or like drawing rough parallels with real-life bands or real-life uh, rock cliches that are, you know, quite funny, but, you know, not have a huge amount of depth. Mm. Whereas with this, he, like, there are some jokes that nods to names of famous opera, like the Barber of Pseudopolis being the Barber of Seville. Mm. Uh, and there's one, the magic flute in the magic something else, but I can't, I can't, like, it's, it's a cop. Yeah, I remember that. And even the one, like, uh, a play entirely about cats. What's yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, little things like that, yeah. yeah. But by and large, he can't rely on the fact that the reader's going to recognise, so he just has to kind of, like, pull you into this world himself mm. um, and depict that, and he just depicts it wonderfully well. Like, uh, Agnes's thing with the, the opera house itself being 
the weird architecture of it, like someone that just made a box purely functionally and then thrown a lot of architecture onto it. <laughs> yeah, and how it's just like a machine, like you have the stage and that looks lovely and the, the seats, but then behind it is all these pulleys and levers and all this business going on. And, you know, I've, I've never like performed in uh, a huge theater or an opera certain, but I'm like a amateur actor myself. So I've per- like I've been in, I've, I've kind of familiar with those situations where you step out on stage and it's just a, you know, the stage with the whatever the nice set of whatever play you're doing the audience is in there and then you go behind after your scene and it's just dark and crowded and people mm-hmm. rushing this way and that and it really does feel like you're you know like you've opened up the uh the door on an or- ornate grandfather clock and i've seen all the cogs whirring inside yeah. um and then i just love the madness of it and the commitment that people have to mm. the show and how um show must go on yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, like he depicts that convincingly and hilarious that when hilariously that when you have like characters like Agnes and Granny and Nanny questioning well why does the show have to go on it does feel like a you know a big thing that distinguishes them rather than being a really easy way of making them feel you know look smart like uh, like a, a trap I suppose bad writers would fall into was like to make your character lead characters look smart you just write other characters around them as dumb yeah um, and if you put it if you state this quite tritely or cynically it's like doing this this will be the case here you're saying like oh you have all these aegis running around staging an opera when people are being killed and the the protagonists are the only ones who stop and say why is this going on but he depicts that spirit to make the whole thing go on and all the superstitions involved and the kind of jockeying for roles and the aspirations of uh, like both people in the chorus the musicians the ballerinas to kind of achieve their like artistic dreams he depicts them in such a way where you do feel like yeah if I was in the midst of this I wouldn't be able to see the wood for the trees you would probably exactly, be nodding yeah. along with them saying yes the show has to go on <laughs> and it does t- it does seem like something remarkable in that context yeah. to have someone question that absolutely um, just to, to bring it back very quickly just one more point I wanted to make about uh, the different identities and fluid identities and everything I think that's really summarised really, really well in uh, Walter Plinge's moment mm-hmm. where, um, I mean, he, he embodies that notion probably better than anybody in the entire yeah. book because he he is the ghost, but he and the ghost are so incredibly different that he can't even acknowledge the fact that he is the one. He constantly refers to the ghost in the third person and it's just like, it, it feels so divisive. And, you know, every person who, uh, it's suspected quite early on that Walter Plinge is the ghost and everyone's like, no, no, that's impossible. Walter, come on, mm-hmm. completely different character. Um, but I love the fact that he accepts like the ghost as a part of himself in a wonderfully symbolic moment the where, where Granny Weatherwax gives him magic mask. That, that whereas before he wore the mask, which is literally, you know, as if to say, I'm shedding my old identity mm-hmm. and putting on a new one. But Granny Weatherwax gives him the magic mask, which is beneath the skin. So it's she's basically giving him permission that you don't need a mask to be a different person. You yeah. can just embody that very, very simply. Great, great moment that like a really it's one of those powerful but understated moments in um uh some Discworld novels. Like sometimes Terry Pratchett can be a little bit on the nose, but that moment is just it's it's wonderful. Like it's just very, very powerful, I think, yeah. for the the message it gets across. I, I like the touch where she says to him, Oh, Perdita has this mask and then she turns to Agnes and says, You're holding it upside down. Yeah. <laughs> Great moment <laughs> <You> though. <know, laughs> she um uh, she 
wholly commits to this uh, notion. Like there's a contra a contrast headology and uh, psychology or psychiatry, psych psych psychiatry psychiatry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, a psychiatrist would convince a man who thought that a monster was chasing him that the monster wasn't real, and Granny would just give him a big stick and you know. Tell him to stand in the chair and watch yeah. come. And I, I'm not mad about that line. Like I kind of got a giggle out of me, but I felt like like it simplified headology uh, much more. You know, it, like it gave a much more simple kind of almost silly view of Granny's headology than what we have seen it be throughout mm. the books and and in this book. But the the core notion that I think he's trying to get across in that line of that she empathizes with the person that she's dealing with to the extent where she just wholly commits to their quote-unquote delusion and gets them through it that way is shown really well in that Walter Plange uh, invisible mask moment that, yeah. like, you know you're holding it upside down that she you, she can see the mask you know herself that it, this isn't just like you know the kind of thing you do to uh, uh, please a child or something of like oh yeah look I'm you know mm. playing along with your silly little idea uh, but I'm making it clear to everyone in the room that I don't, you know, I'm not stupid enough to be taken in by it like you are. No, she, uh, she like uh, appears to believe um, in the mask just as much as Walter does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Do you know, I, f- I found myself, uh, even though this is long before social media, I found myself comparing it a little bit to social media. The idea that these people are, you know, portraying. In, in, in almost every situation, they're portraying themselves in a better light or what they view to be a better light. And I found it really hard to not think of Instagram, weirdly <laughs> enough. You know the whole idea that, you know, uh, people say, oh, just woke up, but, like, they'll take about 17 pictures yeah. to make sure they get just the right angle. So, like, they're trying to make themselves look as naturalistic but fantastic as possible. And uh, I saw a lot of that in here, like uh, particularly with uh, Christine, actually. Yeah. Like there was that wonderful moment where um, she faints, but uh, Agnes goes, but I noticed she f- uh, fainted in such a way that displayed her figure really, really nicely and yeah, made her dress really fun, well. Yeah. I was like, I, I, it's really hard. Like it's it's kind of ahead of its time, I think, because if this came out around the time social media was a thing, it would be, well, I think the story would be a little different for one thing, but... It'll be it'll be really interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that that idea of like kind of people performing their identities and yeah, you know, almost semi consciously, it's 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 been around a long time, so you're really exacerbated with social media. But mm. I mean, I think you're spot on with with uh, Christine. Would definitely she'd be on Instagram. Uh, oh yeah, she'd near constantly. She'd be an Insta- Instagram queen. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we were talking before we went on air about the uh, Kardashians. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I said that part where. Agnes thinks about Christine that in some ways she's actually very smart. You know, I, I there's definitely I, a parallel I, yeah, I there. Think about it where people are like, oh, you know, agents, but it's like, well, like you know, they're obviously very good. Like I, I, I don't like to see making money as the sort of be all and end all of things, and mm. kind of trumps anything. Like you know, um, oh, well, this person it must be really talented or must be really smart because they've made loads of money. Yeah, but. I do think they're obviously do have a you know uh, savviness about them to like to get across this um, image and this brand that really obviously resounds with so many people and mm. on a much smaller scale within the opera 
that's what Christine is doing. Like she might be kind of airheaded at times, but she's um she at the same time she, she, she knows, knows what, what she's to do doing, yeah. to get across the the idea. Because when you think about it too, the like the initial thing that gets her and the lead role is Bucket says about she's the daughter of one of his business associates. Um, who would break his leg or something oh, yeah, if, uh, yeah. if uh, they don't get her into the lead role yeah um, which makes you think if she's a it's also she's a piss Harry King's daughter um, <laughs> it's but, also no coincidence actually that uh, she does befriend Agnes Nitt who is like you know uh, constantly constant references in the book that she has a wonderful personality mm-hmm. she's the one some people what was it um, are destined to be uh, doused with a wet flannel and some people are destined to be the one dousing so like you know, it's like Christine is the one. Christine, it's not it's not portrayed this way, but I kind of feel like Christine would seek out that kind of person. That it, it's almost like having the muscle because you know, like Agnes very much like takes care of her in every possible way. Like you know, so it's you know, I don't think it's coincidence again. That's <laughs> why I'm friends with you. Really, I'm yeah. the muscle, am I? You're the one. You're the one doing the dance, dousing. <laughs> yeah, anytime you're singing, it's me in the background actually doing the more powerful thing. Um, but but that with Christine, it's she gets this role because of these threats to book it. But it seems at a certain stage it kind of outgrows that word. Like by the end, after the whole ghost situation has been resolved, Andre and the rest of them are still going on about her her star um, quality. Yeah, uh, what is it that like? Uh, they've contrasted with talent and they said well it's, it's rarer than talent yeah, yeah. Is, I, I think Dr. Undershaft is the only one where he just he's a purist and thinks like mm. Agnes is a really good singer she should be uh, the one who's front and centre um, that actually but, but but I think they're obviously like Bucket is the only one as far as we know who is under any you know knows that there's this threat of like oh I better you know put Christine out there or I'll get in trouble but all of the rest of them seem to accept the idea, you know. No, there's none of them wondering of like, she's terrible, she's tick. So mm. that sense of her being quite clever and quite good at getting across his image, and yeah, maybe having that star quality is obviously a thing because because uh, everyone else beyond Bucket seems quite accepting, or if not, uh, even actually at times quite enthusiastic about her being a bit like a big star in the opera. Yeah. Yeah, it's odd that actually, and um, you know, so you just reminded me of another thing there when you're talking about uh, Doctor Undershaft, when there's uh, that moment where he gets Agnes to sing for him, mm-hmm. and afterwards, like he just bursts into tears and like he needs them to leave, and Agnes asks afterwards, like, what exactly was I singing? And then Andre translates it for her and something like the door sticks, the door sticks, and like it's a really banal yeah, little yeah. sentence. And, like, that kind of sums up everything we're saying about, dif- uh, you know, displaying a positive identity, like, right there. The, because opera itself, if we take uh, his word for it, then, like, the message is really banal and dumb and, like, ridiculous. But it portrays it like, this really pure romantic sense. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, it sort of ties back into uh, moving pictures, but the style over substance medium is the message kind of thing. That so long as these uh, banal lyrics are being presented in a glamorous sounding foreign language and sung beautifully, mm. people will infer certain things of it. I like it. It's sort of a, a you know, it's the whole emperor's new clothes aspect of opera audiences is a bit of a low hanging fruit, but I, I think it's it's done quite funnily here, and it, it's done rarely enough. I think you only have about two or three scenes with the audience 
doing those bits where when everything starts to go to hell at the end mm-hmm. and you know uh, Grebo is chasing around the ghost they're saying oh yes they done this in Quarm last month <laughs> um, but I like I like that because it doesn't happen too often so it's, it doesn't overstay its welcome as a joke and a bit with uh, Henry Lawsey who I think is a really wonderful character mm. of him going and being really conscious of his own ignorance yeah. and just like looking up all these plots and uh you know, constantly assuming, oh, this is this has got to be, uh, this must be the proper like good thing to happen because this is opera, and I wouldn't know how it works, you know. Yeah. And it's, I love the fact that like it seems like nobody, not even like the performers or composers, really understand how it works. What's that line that um, you can either perform it or understand it, but you can't do both, yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely wonderful. Um, what do you think? One thing that I really like in this book especially when it comes to Walter Plinge, is the question that Granny Weatherwax keeps asking, like, if your house is on fire, yeah. what would you take out of it? And um, it's it's. I'm glad that, you know, they. she doesn't ask this to every single character because I think that would get a bit wearisome, but she asks, she asks the most interesting people. Yeah, and she always gets a good answer out of it. Like, yeah. Like Andre's one about... Uh, who set the fire? Who set the house you're, on you're, fire? You're a copper, all right. But I, I always um, remember Walter Plinge's answer because it's almost like a child's answer, yeah. but not quite. In which uh, she asked, "What uh, would you, if your house is on fire? What would you take out?" And he's like, "Oh, someone else asked me that. And it's such a stupid question. Yeah. It's obvious. I'd take the fire." And it's like, there's like, it's 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 in a way, it's exactly the right answer, but it's totally illogical at the same time. So it's it. <laughs> you know Granny's response to it is almost per- or I think it was Nanny's response to it at that point is actually perfect where she's like you're just you're just a loony <laughs> like, no you know? no they say the opposite they say uh, what is it your mind's tangled but it's not twisted or they keep making the distinction like mm. you're daft but you're not mad yeah um, wh- when they hear that uh, and I think it shows that he's got like this good heart and this uh, beneath his sort of um stunted exterior when he's not the ghost yeah um it's like it basically means that like he doesn't he ultimately just wants to solve problems and help people mm. yeah he's got he's got a very i think it's the implication from it is that he's got a very pure sensibility that like you know he can see he can see basic uh, good and bad but it's the intricacies that kind of cause him a bit of trouble Mm-hmm. Which kind of sums his character up really well. But there's also like the sense of in amid the opera where everyone sort of thinks like corkscrews, and you know you have the whole thing about like Granny and Nanny realizing there has to be two ghosts because this is the only logical conclusion. But like mm. everybody else is thinking the ghost can appear and you know <laughs> disappear. Um, that in a weird way, like his answer to it, you know, suggests really direct thinking. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, house on fire. What's the danger? The danger is the fire. Get rid of the fire. Yeah. Um, and maybe suggest like as to why he's ultimately, uh, it seems like will kind of revolutionize opera by bringing it into the realm of like uh, popular musical with the, you know, the stuff about the Phantom of the Opera and Cats and mm. uh, Les Miserables and um, all, like all that stuff. It's like, he's the, person who will um evolve the opera house and their output because he can see things so straightforwardly yeah. albeit in a in a way that comes out and some you know uh, is expressed strangely sometimes he can he can see the trees within the forest basically yeah. that yeah, kind exactly. of way yeah um i also think it's really interesting the answer that sal gives in that like uh, she asked him like uh, if your house is on fire what would you take out of it and he's like well what would you like me to take out of it and it's like that's you know that's almost objectively a lie a blatant kind of denial of any character 
So it, it's it's interesting because no person would say that I think it'd be genuine unless they wanted to either hide something or, you know, they were trying to get something out of somebody else. You know, it's such mm-hmm. a false answer, which is interesting because I never really thought about it that much uh, when I was reading it first. But this time around, having known what I know now, I'm like, wow, yeah, it's really interesting that you phrase it that way because it's phrased in such a way that you're not supposed to dwell on it too much. But when you know that he's the one who's actually responsible for everything, you're like, it's actually quite sinister. Like, you know, it's like, oh, well, what would you like me to say? Because, like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here's a guy who's not going to show his true intentions. Exactly, yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> what do you think, like, I'm in two minds about him as a villain and the, uh, the whole mystery around him and the resolution. As I said, like, I, I, I sort of like the fact that he almost deliberately goes for a villain that's a much smaller scale of threat yeah. or danger than the uh, kind of uh, the witch's previous enemies because there's you know he's not got the top to previous ones um, and I, I like reading it again there's some nice bits that kind of point you in the direction again where if you're thinking like Granny and Annie you should realise pretty soon there are two ghosts and the other thing is the part where he you see him waving the mask around he's like I've got the ghost it's Walter Plinge get after him <laughs> and then when you see Walter running away and he gets to the roof and Granny you know um, convinces them Grebo is the ghost she takes off Walter's mask and gives it to Grebo and I didn't again this isn't something I got the first time I read it but reading now I'm like oh so Walter's still wearing a mask that Granny can give to Grebo then what mask did why did Salzella have a mask that he you know he was mm. waving around because he's the ghost. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, like there's uh, nice things like that. Um, and his motive of just like embezzling all the money is banal, but, you know, whatever, pretty understandable. And almost again, like deliberately and appropriately prosaic compared to some of the other yeah. threats the witches have been dealing with. It's, um, it's the tricky thing that like it's fitting that he's not as melodramatic a villain as most of the other villains we've encountered so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost every villain before has been this, oh, you know, we need to up the ante. It's like such a huge threat. Salzella doesn't come across as that at all. Like, there's mm-hmm. no point really where you're thinking, oh my God, this this is like the biggest threat anyone's ever faced. Even Agnes seems like fairly capable of dealing with like uh, this sort of thing. And this is like her first real foray into any kind of adventure with the witches. And it's just kind of, it's not really that big a deal. It's... But see, the tricky part of that is when the stakes are deliberately not that high, it's hard not to feel a little shortchanged. I think I think I prefer him to most of the previous ones because, as we said before, we all, we nearly always have a problem with villains mm-hmm. in Terry Pratchett books. They're always a little uh, underwhelming. But um, I think it, he, uh, Terry Pratchett achieves what he goes for here. Like he goes for a deliberately underwhelming uh, villain to put more focus on the characters and. I think that's exactly what we should do in this book. Like, we shouldn't put too much stock into Salzala as a, you know, a memorable villain or anything. He's just a plot device, really, to kind yeah. of keep the things going. And it's not really... And funnily enough, he, him as a... It's not really him as a villain we should be focusing on. It's the ghosts, you know, the the side of him that, like, he's presenting to the world. That's what's memorable about Masquerade. Mm-hmm. When I picked this uh, the book up first... I had it in my head that I knew Walter Plinge was the ghost in some way, but I'd completely forgotten that Sal Zala was as well. I remember thinking, like, oh, was it Dr. Undershaft or was it Mr. But-? Like, I knew somebody mm-hmm. else was uh, 
also involved, but I couldn't remember who. So he is deliberately underwhelming, but I think that's appropriate. Yeah, the like particularly the the bit where it's explicitly revealed he is the ghost. Mm. It feels deliberately anticlimactic. You know, I think it's uh, it builds up the tension where Granny and Agnes are in Bucket's office, and so it's coming, and Granny kind of uh, you know makes herself. Uh, inconspicuous to the point of invisibility mm. and Agnes hides behind the curtain and you know goes, it's from her point of view and her heart's thumping and, and then it's Andre and you have these moments of where it has teased you know with Andre there's a part where Agnes saw him somewhere he shouldn't be and she mentions about like the lights falling on his face mm. making him look kind of threatening um, and then when he reveals it is name he's just like yeah I'm here looking for Salzella yeah <laughs> it's at that point it's like oh, oh okay it's, yeah it's him so yeah um, yeah it's really underwhelming yeah and, and I feel again like deliberately so and it, it's almost like it's sort of cutting through the fact that opera is all about these really circuitous ridiculous plots where you know it's just yeah. people don't recognise their own wife because they're you know wearing a tiny mask and it's like cutting through that where it sets up a plot where while you kind of get Andre as a possible tease, really it can, you know, only after a point it can only really be Salzella, and it's mm. like, yeah, we're not going to pretend this is this, oh my goodness, it's Salzella. <laughs> of course, you're smart, these characters are smart, they know it's Salzella, you know it's Salzella. <laughs> um, the part where, I, like, yeah, so, you know, I just, I thought it was worth shouting that out with you because I, I kind of felt like, oh yeah, it feels appropriate that it's underwhelming, and it doesn't actually bother me that much, but mm. maybe, I'm, maybe I'm going uh, too easy on this. But the part I'm a little less mad on is when he um, when he dies, uh, and I really like the fact that he dies in this like opera way, where he doesn't really get stabbed, but he yeah. just believes it so much that he uh, presumably has a heart attack or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little confusing, um, but it's enjoyably and, so. And he gets the speech, the deathbed speech that they've mentioned as a cliche of opera, where there keeps being more and more exclamation points and he keeps getting up and so, <laughs> like I think all that's really funny and very appropriate um, and the whole narratology of it like in the power of stories ties in really well with the previous mm. witches book particularly with Witches Abroad and Weird Sisters you know where it's like plays and stories and Granny understanding that you know she doesn't have to learn it in this book she just knows she, she just knows it, it yeah, now the show up, has yeah. to go on this has to end the way an opera show would end you know she knows from the previous books and this is Speaking of which, just a quick little insert there. I do love the fact that they have, they literally ended with the fat lady singing, yeah, yeah. Agnes doing her one screams, like, ah, no, it's over. Yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, so, like, I like all of that, and the fact that in, in that particular place with, where we've seen the, the, I suppose, the power of opera to convince Walter Plange to show his true self, um, that that's enough to kill Salzella. But his rant about not liking opera, I found really weird, and it felt just like, like almost as if like an excuse to kind of for Pratchett to just go to town on all these opera cliches again mm. because there's nothing really like he's very cynical throughout the whole thing you know he has a lot of those uh, catty comments and black humour with Bucket when they're finding bodies and things like that and uh, um, and he's just so unmoved by it and you know mm. making these grim little jokes and it has a horrible comment to it uh, like um Agnes, so I mean, we've, we've talked about her weight a lot, and I said I like the fact that Granny is the first one to explicitly describe her as fat. Yeah. But ne- never as cruel a comment as when she leaves the office and he says, Do you think she, she knows, knows how fat yeah, she is? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's or, very, very. I don't think even says fat, you think like she knows she's that size or something. And it's just something about like, so disgusted but also patronizing about it, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it, it is incredibly patronizing, and I think. On that note, like it's that's it's kind of satisfying that he is the villain in that sense mm-hmm. because 
that is probably the cruelest thing to happen. Like, I know people die and everything in the book, but that feels particularly cutting considering we've been traveling in Agnes's head this entire time and we know how insecure she is about herself. So the fact that someone says that in such a cutting, glib sort of way makes you really wish bad things upon him. But in a kind of a subconscious way, like you kind of just dismiss him as an asshole. But, you know, at the same time, you do kind of hold on to it and like have it above his head that you just... He, deserve, he deserves bad things to happen to him. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, but I'm still just a bit unsure about that like rant against opera because for me, it kind of came out of nowhere. I, I, don't, I didn't really get the sense of him uh, hating opera throughout. You know, he, very, he very much had a kind of cynical business over art view of it, bums on seats compared to Dr. Undershaft where mm. he, you know, uh, Undershaft says like, oh, no, the voice matters and, you know, Dame Sheely was whatever... 20 stone and she could sing well and um, so I was emphasizing ah you gotta move with the times um, and obviously he's very he doesn't care about it enough not to rob all the money but just the, the rant against it felt I don't know very very strange and sort of out of place uh, I just kind of viewed it as a hysterical outburst at the end that like I mean at this point he's very much cornered he has nowhere to go and I imagine in that situation you need something like um, if you think of the previous book Interesting Times where Lord Hong is kind of cornered mm-hmm. and Two Flower challenges to a duel in a very out of character kind of manner he just kind of says you stupid little man and he says like I'll, I'll destroy you in a heart. I can't remember his exact terms but basically he just has this flaming outburst to somebody who really doesn't deserve it and like you know it's out of character it's um it's it's leveled at him not because this is how he feels, but because he's in a state of desperation. And he just needs to lash out at somebody. Yeah, but I like it with Lord Hong because so much emphasis is put on his level of control and focus throughout it all mm. that it feels appropriate that towards his demise he should lose all of that. You That's know? fair. Yeah, and yeah. the circumstances have been like with his army being destroyed and so on, and the empire being taken over by barbarians that he would mm. start to lose his rag. And he's always had this. I mean, the, like the most easily the most kind of one of the most hateable aspects of his character is his utter contempt of the peasantry and that, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I definitely feel that he would have that, like, level of hatred against someone like Tufa or daring to stand up to him when, you know, he would barely view him as, as an ant beneath his feet. Um, and Salzella, there's kind of similar thing with, like, that he's a very kind of cool, sly, smirking character and then he loses control. So there's something satisfying about that uh, and I like the fact that as he's ranting about opera he's becoming more operatic there's more and more exclamation mm-hmm. points he's you know doing it but it's still like nothing how do you put it like nothing Lord Hong says to Two Flower at the end is anything is anything that you think he hasn't felt before you know what I mean yeah. like he might be ranting about it with less self-control Done. he would be you know maybe earlier in the book he would have been thinking about it much more coolly and detachedly but you you still do by the fact that like oh yeah he's always hated the peasants he's disgusted mm. that this fellow will try to hold him uh, accountable for the actions of his soldiers whereas Salzella um, I, I, I like the loss of self-control but I'm like what we never got a hint, we never really got the hint that he had this vitriolic mm. hatred of opera that's been you know burning up inside him and presumably fuels part of his reason to do this yeah it's it's kind of hard to call because you know we discussed how we think it's a great thing that um 
the emphasis on the villain is like not emphasized sorry, the the villain isn't viewed here as like a really upping the stakes kind of villain he's very much like a below the, like mm-hmm. much lower caliber than the villains we've come across previously but a kind of unfortunate side effect of that is he has less depth yeah. so you know it's um, I mean it's I do think it's interesting that um, I'm not inter- I, no I do think it is kind of interesting that he his literal his only um, motivation for doing the things he does is money and I think that's what we're supposed to think um, but so Terry Pratchett has this habit of like you know swaying into the melodramatic for the villain's end for nearly mm-hmm. every single book and I think that's just something that's become habit at this point I mean like you said I do really like the fact that as he's ranting about he becomes part of the opera scene which is satisfying um, yeah it's it is it is a slightly problematic bit. I, I don't think like it's a complete flop or a failure to end the, end the book on but I do take your point. I do think it is a little out of character and it doesn't quite sync up as well as it should. Yeah, having said all that, because, uh, as you said, he is like a deliberately lower stakes villain, it sort of matters less that you have this than maybe it would in another book where the villain is a bigger part of the mm. you know, the story and, uh, and if you kind the of ideas view it, and the teams and so forth. If you kind of view it as like... If you kind of view the book almost like, you know, an opera itself, you can just kind of see it like, you know, going through the motions. Like, it doesn't... You know, he has like a deliberately shallow motiva- motivation and it's typical that it ends in this just kind of melodramatic way. You know, you're almost thinking, okay, you know, it almost doesn't matter that none of this makes sense. Like, you know, he why does he die? We don't know. He just dies because the play or the opera tells him he should be dead at this point. Why is he going on this long rant? That's what you do in opera, you know. It's just kind of the magic of the show. It's like it's similar to like soul music and moving pictures. It's just it's just the magic of the you know, the medium in this case that just kind of flows through people and makes them work the way they do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that it's like a little shallow, but I think the book sweeps it along nicely that you don't really focus on it too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I bring your attention to one more theme that I found kind of interesting sure. in this? Now, we kind of touched upon it already, but the idea of uh, envy permeating through a lot of characters in this book, because first of all, very, very obviously, we have Agnes and Christine. Mm-hmm. It's it's very obvious there that like Agnes basically wants to be Christine, only not such a dope, <laughs> in essence. But I find it really interesting that there's a, and this this comes right back to the great chemistry among all the witches that both Granny and Nanny have moments where they're jealous of each other, mm-hmm. which is really uh, great. Like I love how um, you know again we t- we talked about this before how Granny is kind of focusing on how. Uh, Nanny Og was able to just go into any building and like you know become you know friends with everybody and know everything and it's re- in this book especially it's viewed as a really valuable skill to have yeah, yeah. like in previous books it's kind of like it's just part of her character it's not really that big a deal but here it's like no this is like in one area that Nanny Og really is a better person than Granny like she can do something really well that mm-hmm. Granny just cannot grasp at all and it's like that's a really it's really well written really well put together it's it builds on the chemistry that we've seen before in really interesting ways but it's interesting that this is one of the first times we've seen nanny being actually jealous of granny because before there's just this kind of dull acknowledgement that oh granny weatherby she's like you know powerful and like she's great and you wouldn't want to cross her but she's just always kind of like and that's just how it is it doesn't really affect nanny whatsoever but there's a few points in this one where she's kind of uh, 
you know, uh, annoyed. Like I, particularly when he they go into the is it, it's not the Dolly Sisters, is it? You know, the house the oh uh, Mrs. Pam's Mrs. Pam's uh, place. Yeah. So they find out that it's basically a brothel, and uh, Nanny's like, oh, I'm just furious. I'm gonna have to go back and throttle our Jason or whoever it was who recommended they stay there. But then Granny is really like familiar. I think she stays there in equal rights, is it or something? Yeah, yeah. In equal rights, is. nice that it's all back incidentally. Yeah. Like even however you feel about equal rights, it is nice that they bring it back up again. But um, you can see it just doesn't sit right with Nanny whatsoever. That Granny's able to walk into this brothel and she's just completely comfortable and it's just fine. It's like this is my world. Like you know, and that makes sense for mm-hmm. her character. Like it makes sense that Nanny isn't jealous of Granny Weatherwax at any point because like oh yeah you're great with magic and headology well done you but in this one area Nanny's supposed to be the queen and that's why it irks her so much it also has that great moment where she gets her revenge with the uh, the (laughs) the uh, making the dessert that's so like uh, so I know like uh, childish almost but so funny it's that's Um, the there's a lot of great moments and the point where she tells the the, uh, bucket that Granny made her money as a famous courtesan. Yeah. <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> and like it's, it's again, I read this when I think I was about nine or ten years old, and some aspects of it went a little bit over my head. I'm not gonna lie, but I just love the fact that uh, that's the reason they think what happens to them happens. That they're just like, oh, it's just the effect Granny Weatherwax has on yeah. people. Like she's just able to, like you know conjure up this arousal in men so furiously it also has this great just a great little piece of iconography there where um, Nanny comes in and says you ate the whole thing but you're not even breaking a sweat and then Granny holds up the glass of water and about a couple of seconds later the water begins to boil and it's just oh it's a wonderful little section yeah and then it uh, foreshadows the bit where she catches the sword and puts off getting cut by it to later yeah. which is a uh, yeah, really um, clever, and also just I think depicts magic in in a way I quite enjoy, where it's rarely used. So when it is, it seems more effective, and it also always has consequence. You know, you and can't just kind of cast a shield around yourself and affect swords. And that's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like the wi- you're going to have to pay a price sooner or later. The wizards convey that very well in any section they come up in, because it always seems like a real exertion for them to use magic. But sometimes it kind of comes across that Granny and Nanny are able to use magic and it's just whatever. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a similar sort of occurrence in um, Witches Abroad when uh, Granny uh, confronts her sister? I think there's a moment where you know something similar happens, but I can't remember exactly what it oh, is. Oh, you're thinking of the point where she's going up the stairs and Mrs. Gogol has to uh, voodoo doll and she puts her hand in the fire. That's it, yeah. Oh, her. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's... It's still it's still explained reasonably well, but I think this one does a much better job of it because you can see the logic behind it. You can see why it works. Yeah, you I know? I, I, I really like that bit with the voodoo doll. I think it's yeah, one of the, it is the, great. The yeah. best parts of the whole book. But yeah, like I, I like this. I like this bit a lot too. Mm. Um, and it's, it's the actual the idea that the steaming glass foreshadows it. I've completely gone over my head until you brought it back up there mm-hmm. and it clicked into place. Oh, that's um, awesome. One quick thing on the jealousy thing, I uh, there's a bit where um, Christine is showing off her new dress and Agnes is thinking about something else and she kind of like tries to change the subject and Christine says something like, I don't need to be jealous. And I just think like it's just like wonderfully, uh, how would you put it, like that, again that's showing a very particular kind of cleverness but also 
this wonderfully relatable thing where from I think we've all been in those you know the, the shoes where you're in a discussion maybe even on an argument with someone and you suddenly find them kind of like uh, claiming you're in a certain position like you know like oh you're getting really angry when you're you know you're not getting angry like no need to go mm. mad at me or like you know yeah no yeah. need to get so jealous or to get so sensitive and you feel you're not but then it's just like it's this rhetorical trap where you kind of you can't really get out of it you know because of course it's it's, it's the whole thing with like female hysteria you know the whole idea yeah, is yeah. like you're being totally irrational and like it's a very normal reaction to be frustrated when someone says you're being irrational when you're not so you tend to lash out yeah, when somebody says it, point, just yeah. to prove the point. It, yeah, it's a really yeah, and interesting. It, and this is kind of Christine using it to her advantage almost. But that bit when I hadn't thought of it much, but when you said jealousy, it jumped right into my mm. head, and like I thought it was one again. Um, like I, I really like uh, Bagnus's old journey in this book because it's full of so many like kind of like relatable moments, just like for like like as a young person growing up, being kind of yeah. unsure about your like uh, confidence in your body image and things like that. Um, and, and that's one of those just like those little moments that seem very true to life do you uh, know what's very interesting just about Agnes as a character is that when if I was to think of the witches all the witches books as um, as a whole I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of um, oh yeah there's the three witches uh, Granny, Nanny and Magrat and then Magrat gets replaced by Agnes and it's very easy to simply think oh yeah like Agnes is like uh, the replacement Magrat mm-hmm. but and like in so she serves the same role, but she has a notably different personality. Yeah. It's easy to kind of forget that because they differ. She differentiates herself from Magrat very, very early on when uh, I think she's thinking about her, and um, she describes her as a bit soppy or like kind of a bit of a wet rag or something like that or whatever. Uh, I think she says she's the kind of person who would have teddy bears or something in her room. No, no, she has teddy bears in her. room. Oh, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. But um, she still managed to differentiate differentiate herself enough from her that you're kind of like, yeah, okay, you're not just going to be filling Magrat's shoes like for the sake of convenience. This is actually evolving the entire relationship with the witches again. So like things are going to be a bit different now. Like, yeah. Uh, but it is useful. But the same token, that's fulfilling the role that Magrat had. It's very convenient, but it doesn't sacrifice the chemistry of the characters. You know, mm-hmm. to, to to satisfy that convenience. Yeah, which is great. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Oh, the one thing here. This is close as we come to a watch witch crossover book. With, oh uh, yeah, Nobby and Detritus having a um, an appearance in it, which is of course like you know really funny. The bits with them like really ineptly trying to disguise themselves uh, are, are are really good. Um, and I like. I think it's interesting with Andre and the Cable Street particulars, mm. who are obviously established off page, as it were, between Men at Arms and now. And it does wonderfully set us up for a feet of clay and for the watch books going on where I think I said when um, I had forgotten that at the end of Guards Guards or at the beginning of Men at Arms, post Guards Guards, the watch are still kind of a joke. Yeah. And it's only after Men at Arms then that you see that not only do they grow, but that growth is so uh, intrinsic a part of them that it can happen off page. And, we, you know, we as readers are just asked to accept it, you know. And um, so, like, from book to book, you'll have stuff like... I think, like, at one stage, like, between books, Anua just becomes captain, and you're, it's not particularly a big moment, you're just like, oh yeah, of course you would, because that makes sense. there's more, yeah. there's more watchmen, and she's one of the most senior people there, so she would be, um, and you get these different things, like, some of it's covered in detail, like, Cheery being the forensics person, and so on, mm. but uh, others more tangentially, and I, I like, like, that sets that up nice and subtly, that, like, 
oh yeah at the end of Men at Arms Cara announced like negotiated all these plans to increase the watch with Veterinary and this is the uh, this is the oh, like, kind the of result um, of it, the result of it yeah, yeah is that you see these like a secret uh, undercover cops like uh, Andre and I like too because I was really and I I completely forgotten he was an undercover uh, so lie uh, actually cop. yeah and I was really I'm thinking you know this book to accommodate the witches solving this mystery it really does vimes of the service and the watch because surely they'd be doing a better job at the opera house and I was like well you know I think more parts of big city there are probably a lot of murders going on like they only have so many people. Um, but then, of course, you see the art doing something course, by, getting, yeah. Uh, by yeah, putting uh, Nobby in Detroit almost as decoys. Um, <laughs> although it is almost a pity that at the end of an Andre book just goes like seems to uh, stick in the opera. Granny makes some comment about it being saved from a life as a copper. But uh, mm. it, it would have been interesting if the Cable Street particulars were a, a big part of the, the watch books. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like I know they're mentioned like a little bit in uh, Feet of Clay, but it's just kind of call back to that like you know it, it's consistent and it makes sense but um yeah it's it's not heavily focused on it's weirdly enough that um, the fact that they're able to do this like that the guards segment of like this world is able to evolve this way off page um it sort of reminds me of uh the way the likes of the marvel universe has gone in uh recent years you know that like stuff can happen in like you know marvel movies and you just kind of accept it mm-hmm. like uh it's, it's it's just so huge now at this point that you're just kind of like okay yeah I totally accept that um, uh, Captain America and Ant Man are friends or whatever <laughs> like that just that's grand whatever um, I do like the fact that it's I, I I know there's a few points that were like wouldn't it be great if Granny met Vimes this is probably the closest we ever get but I like that it's kind of such a passing thing but Vimes kind of gets the nod of approval from Granny where she's kind of like what no I seen like you know guards that's the, totally inept and obvious and then she's like oh nice like there's a brief moment there where you're like Vimes thought of something Granny Weatherwax didn't and you're like (laughs) yes I like that I like that like Granny Weatherwax isn't simply a superior in every way kind of character to like other people that like yes Vimes thinks like a policeman Granny thinks like a witch and Mm -hmm. in some cases this is more appropriate I really really like yeah, that yeah exactly and as you said like it's, it's, it's contextual in that way because um, Granny is obviously she's going to be used to a very different type of watchman being from this small rural area yeah like Vimes is kind of burgeoning urban police force there's something almost new in the disc world as you see later when he's, he's kind of sent to train other policemen so it makes sense that she wouldn't anticipate it it doesn't mm. undercut her as a character um, it just suggest it just kind of enriches the uh bigness of the dis- the bigness you sound like Donald Trump the size <laughs> of, the, of the disc world that you know there are these things that are going to be happening off page that even the cleverest characters are uh, you know aren't as savvy to as they might be yeah they need to come to terms with I think that's more or less everything I have on this book but as per usual I have a couple of like wonderful wonderful lines that jumped out at me that I couldn't really fit into this conversation well, well, I got one more thing before you oh yeah, we're yeah it's yeah. just that we haven't kind of, we've talked around her a lot but Nanny Og in this book is wonderful mm. um, not only is she really really funny and as you said we get to see her strengths like her very particular strengths with how she uh, socialises and gets to know people so well and um, can use that to like her advantage but we also see her like play Granny Weatherwax to a certain extent you know it's almost mm. ambiguous as to whether she deliberately put Granny's name or you know like described uh, um, uh, put so what is it uh, 
listed the author of the Jive Snacks as the Lunker Witch mm. deliberately to rile Granny up and get her going. There's certainly the bit when Granny decides they're going to go thank Morfork and Nanny's admit, uh, initially protesting, then she smiles. Mm. Um, and it's as if, you know, she kind of, she sort of knows where to, you know, where to point Granny and how to push her buttons. Oh, absolutely. I mean, doesn't that's... have to pry to, uh, you know, go on about it or, or like, yeah, talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's very much a case of like, like you know, Granny is this force of nature to be reckoned with, but uh, Nanny, Nanny is very much, um, you know, the one. She's kind of like the herder almost, or like the lion tamer, so to speak, mm-hmm. in a way. Because not that she controls her, but she knows how to direct her, as you said. Like it's, and uh, she's excellent that way. Um, it's interesting how the way she reacts to uh, the whole money situation. Um, I know we've we've gone over this like at some length, but um, I think it is a testament to her character that it isn't something she gets completely hung up on. Like she does kind of moan and complain about, it, but towards the end she's almost like she's still moaning and griping, but she's almost throwing away money like mm-hmm. as casually as um, you know as if like it just didn't matter anymore. And it is very much a case of that it's almost like she can't comprehend it, like. Uh, she when she hears about how much money she's owed at first, she's like, "Oh my god, that's incredible!" But it soon loses meaning. Like uh, like you said, when uh, the, she goes to the dressmaker and she finds like, "Oh yeah, well, if time equals money, money equals time," and she's literally just throwing money away at this point. I think it's more or less implied that there's nothing left by the end of it. Yeah. So um, you know, there's a general kind of moany gripiness about the fact that she has to lose it all in this one go. But by the same token, she isn't really sore about it. She's just kind of like, ah, well, it would have been nice. You know, that kind of way. So, mm-hmm. And I'm glad that, like, that, sh- that isn't seen as a weakness for her. Like, it's, it's kind of, it, in a way, it's actually her strength. The fact that she's able to let go. She doesn't hold on to these things. That she's able to just accept that, you know, she's accepted who she is, her way of life. And uh, it is, like, they say it as a joke, but it is actually very emblematic of her entire character. Is that... Uh, what was it? It's something like, I think Granny Weatherwax says money can't buy happiness and she said I just wanted to rent it for a little while. <laughs> and like, that's, yeah, that's that actually sums it up so perfectly because like, you know that even if Nanny did have like that money, maybe it would be saved, maybe like she'd buy something extravagant that would be stupid or whatever, but it wouldn't change her at all. You know, like, you, I think you and I both know, well, I know at least anyway, that if she was suddenly became rich, she still would hide it in the chimney. She still like she'd probably yeah. just she'd continue living very much the way she is. Maybe with considerably more like a scumble or like some kind of uh, alcohol or something. But yeah, that'd just be her way of life. She'd just continue as is, and it's a real strength to her character that I think this book shows. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we we just we get to see it like um, uh, because she's no longer the mediator between Nanny uh, or Granny and McGrath like she was in Witches Abroad and to a certain extent um, Lords and Ladies we just get to see a lot more of her being her uh, mm. it's really satisfying I like her motherly sympathy for uh, Mrs. Plinge as well when yeah. she hits her with a bottle of champagne Nanny gets up smiling and thinks well I do the same thing for any of mine <laughs> uh, but still chases her down yeah. and, you know, and, and grabs her you just offered me a brilliant segue for the line that I really like there's one of the great lines in it where um, just after uh, they were mugged 
And Nanny goes, it's a cruel world for old ladies, said Nanny, matriarch of a vast extended tribe and undisputed tyrant of half the Ramtops. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's just great. And it does kind of play up to the whole, uh, you know, alternative or fluid identity as well, because, you know, Nanny is kind of a kindly old lady, but she is also, as I said, matriarch and tyrant and <laughs> all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, just one other line that I had that I really liked was, uh, it's, just, it's, it's great when... Um, Terry Pratchett has this wonderful way of words when uh, Agnes stands out in the auditorium for the first time and she says she could feel the auditorium in front of her the huge empty space making the sound Velvet would make if it could snore it's like <laughs> that's a wonderful line it's like I mean how would you even come up with yeah. like that it's just incredible it's a hell of a way of words yeah the one I've got here and I feel some sort of the whole uh, thing of identity pretty well is Granny says to Agnes Never pick yourself a name you can't scrub the floor in. Yeah. <laughs> about, about her having paired it in. Mm-hmm. Granny says she had a kind of fancy... What was it? Esme or something. Yeah. Like. And it's like, it, I like how it's it's very much it's similar to Perdita in a way. It's kind of like, yeah, we're not so different, you and I. <laughs> that kind of way. Mm. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. But I think that is, that is our discussion done with, really, unless you have anything else. No, I think we have exhausted all the themes and humorous lines in that <laughs> that and book so if, if we haven't please let us know uh, shout at us on social media on twitter or facebook we'll come back and do all of this again a direct <laughs> yeah. a director's cut of masquerade so to speak with uh, extra dinosaurs <laughs> extra dinosaurs extra dinosaurs so i, I suppose we should rank this we should need you so for anyone listening for the first time we um build up essentially uh, a ranking of the best Discworld books in the world ever or a very subjective our very subjective account of what our favorite ones are as we go along so we build a book by book add the current book in each episode so that right now the list stands at 17 books all the ones we've covered so far we'll see where we can slot this one in at present our number one is lords and ladies our number 17 is eric um, where are you where are you thinking for masquerade steve well it's it's definitely high but it, i don't think it kicks lord and ladies off the top spot by any means uh because that book was incredible obviously um okay let me see so i, I immediately go to the other witches books because that's a good kind of comparison yeah. i think it is better than witches abroad yeah i'd agree i think it definitely is um Ooh, now see just above that we have Reaper Man and then Men at Arms and see we're getting into the really really good ones here and it's kind of hard to say like Men at Arms achieves so much so much in its book and this one it, it does as well but it's inevitable to kind of draw on how it's um it's it's deliberately underwhelming but still in a way a little bit underwhelming even though everything it does it does very very well um hmm yeah, I I would I would I would put a bum man there for myself. I think it I think it succeeds at what it tries to do much more so than men arms. Think of what men arms is like full of great ideas and great moments. I think masquerades overall more satisfying. You know, it does you, have a tighter narrative. Yeah, I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah. Like I I the only thing I came out of masquerade kind of thinking it pondering a little on Salzella's and the opera rent, but other than that. Mm. I just really enjoyed it. Whereas I came out of Mend Arms while like I loved a lot of bits, but with a few things of, Oh, I wish this had been different or, you know, I wish that had been different. Um, and, and I think, uh, masquerade sort of is quite subtle in like the, you know, capital T team stuff with, when it comes to mm. identity and masks and stuff like that, it doesn't really push it, but I think it's all the better for that. Um, 
Yeah, it's actually the more I'm thinking about it, it keeps escalating in in my personal favor. Like, even though I love Mort to bits, uh, which we have at number five, like I think I've said before, it's one of my favorite books of all time. I think this book does a lot of things better even than that book. So I'd probably rank it above Mort even. Um, the next one is Small Gods, which we've had a bit, <laughs> of a, a, bone of bit, bit of a disagreement on. I definitely rank it above that. Um, guards, guards. Ooh, that's a tricky one now. Um, maybe not guards, guards, because I... Yeah, I, I think I'd probably... If I was to place it now, and I think the more I think about it, it's just going to be like impossible to place this accurately, because we'll always change our minds. But at the moment, I'm thinking I'd place it at about number four. I I put it at number five. I put it just below Small Gods, and it's something we. Oh, this is so. This is something we're definitely going to end up arguing over, because uh, let me see. So you wouldn't put it above Small Gods, but above Mort. Yeah. See Uh, now, if those are the other way around, this would be easier for me. Um, let me see. Okay. Well, I think we can definitely agree that I I think it goes above Mort. I mean, if I'm saying that, then absolutely. Um, see, I put it above Small Gods. But uh, I know you wouldn't, so this is. I think this is really up to you. So, yeah, I think uh, like Small Gods just um, for me just nips it because even though I admire how uh, subtle and fun and um, how would you put it, uh, um, unpresumptuous, unprepossessed, unpresuming. You're just saying words now. Yeah, I know, yeah, I'm like devolving into Trumpy and rambling once again. Um, what, I, what I mean is Masquerade, do, like, just, like, kind of on the surface can be read just as a very fun, engaging romp with, like, really good characters. But there's also a lot of thematic stuff bubbling beneath the surface that, isn't really kind of thrown at the reader that doesn't sort of proclaim itself in the rooftops, but is very good and interesting when you dig into it. Yeah. And Small Gods is a bit more uh, obvious with its like you know kind of themes and what like what you know what it's trying to start a conversation on. But even though it is more obvious, I also think it's more effective. Like I also for me those themes are kind of like not only huge and hugely important, but also dealt with with like incredible nuance where as i said you can read this book as an atheist or a fundamentalist and kind of enjoy it you know or like and that's either in the extreme there's like any different shades in between you know like i i feel it's a book that would um for a lot of people like how would you put it increase atheist sympathy for religious and increase religious people's uh skepticism of religion you know mm. um so, well, like, while those, it is very, like, you know, big, obvious teams taking on religion, I just think it, it does it so well that, like, that kind of gives it so many points for me. And, uh, like, we went into a time and we disagreed, and I also think, just from a purely visceral sense, Small Gods gives a great sense of place with the desert and with Ephib and with Om. Um, this does it with the, the uh, Opera House, too, but um, almost anything Masquerade does... Small Gods also does for me, but just does it like a little more, mm-hmm. a little bigger. With the pot, with the except, maybe the exception of character, where I think with Bruta and Om, um, you have two uh, very good characters, notwithstanding Vorbis or oh no, sorry, three Bruta and Om um, and Vorbis, notwithstanding uh, Vorbis's kind of uh, weird off character um, rant at the end. Uh, 
which a is recurring theme. Yeah, some of yeah. the chairs in Masquerade actually. Uh, Masquerade, maybe uh, you certainly have three great characters with Agnes, Nanny, and Granny, and maybe you could stretch it even a little, like a little more. Like all the minor characters are really good, but um, yeah, Small Gods just kind of leaves me in a bit more awe. Done, done. Uh, Masquerade does, but. You know, I feel like I'm underselling Masquerade by saying all this because, like, I know you feel a lot. You're a lot cooler towards Small Gods than me, so I'm kind of giving it. I'm in a position of giving it a hard sell here. Mm. I mean, ultimately, what I'm arguing for is still for Masquerade to be put ahead of like every book on our list so far, bar four of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there are some really good books there below it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this is a book that wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of as one of my favourite Discord books I don't think I get the feeling like I probably wouldn't figure really highly in a lot of you know yeah. if you ask people offhand like name your top 3 top 5 Discord books I'm not sure if this would jump out um, I'll be curious to even see like our listenership varies depending on the, the book we look at the watch ones uh, and the Rincewind ones actually tend to be um, very popular and um, I, I'd be curious to see if maybe this one get gets you know like gets as many but uh, I mean, I think in the same way we talk about moving pictures being underrated, I think this is very underrated too. I think if mm. there's this girl fans listening to this who maybe have only read it the once or haven't read it in a long, long time, definitely would, read it. I yeah. would urge them to revisit it. Yeah, it's it's much. I think it's much better the second time around when you're really, uh, you know, delving into the themes of it. Um, this, I'm I'm sorry to say, this is something we're just going to like disagree on because I know you're saying like the themes in Small Gods are so much richer and like better communicated and effective. But like as we discussed, like they they were a lot more relevant to you. Whereas like I think we we kind of nailed it on the head that like just because I was really not a very religious God person growing up, that was that's probably why it didn't have such a strong effect on me. So personally, like I would be, I mean, like if if, if you'll insist on it, then like fair enough. But for me, it would one hundred percent be like you know I place it above small gods. Like it's yeah. So that'd be that'd be my argument, and I I don't think I could. But, like I mean, if if you say like fine, we're putting it up there. That'll just be you usurping me. But I would very strongly. Well, I mean, here now you're you're leaving the ground open by saying you said a few minutes ago. Oh, I leave it up to you. And I know, I know. And you're, now you're, saying, you're saying to me, you could put it in there. But if you do, you're you know, if you do, you're, you're bad. <laughs> I mean, I would put it in there. I'd also say like I I have no doubt from where it is now, there probably will be a. a decent mm. handful of books that will go ahead of it like you know yeah, even in the, the high opinion I have that there's still some that like from a distance I would see as equal or better than it you know and mm. um, yeah like I'd kind of uh, you know that, that will go there like I'm not going to be what I mean is I don't think with every we, we've been in a position with the last two episodes where like we we thought maybe they weren't some of the best stuff, so it was a little easier. We yeah, you know, it's, it's break them down. More... Uh, but I will say, I don't think for every really good one we encounter from now on, you'll be you know kind of like uh, trying to kind of shake me out of out, out of keeping it beneath small gods. I just feel mm. I just feel with with this one, um, it's it was like a very pleasant surprise for me, and I said very underrated, but for all that that's still kind of like it didn't give me the kind of i don't know the, the powerful reaction i had to to small gods like the um as much as i i kind of found like the like uh stuff about agnes and body image and and growing up quite moving and, and it seemed with granny and the um playing cards for the baby's life is lovely i'm not sure there's like it had anything 
quite as powerful as um like the uh you know the the, the bits in the, the desert in small gods and Bruta being in a maze mm. with Vorbis and thinking I could you know I could leave him here to die and nobody would ever know but I'd know and Bruta finding Vorbis at the end and death's thing about you know uh, he, he like time is more personal here and he's been here like an eternity mm. and Bruta's still resolving to uh, bring Vorbis with him across the desert of judgment even though Boris has been like another kind of you know uh, bastard throughout the whole book. I think we're just in a, a subjective kind of impasse here because like I just you're, you're describing all these moments and I'm like yeah those bits were fine like I just I just was not affected. By I want someone 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 back me up on this someone tell me someone <laughs> they, they, someone someone, someone, how. someone tell me yeah buy on Twitter on Facebook or something someone just said like hashtag Steve is wrong about small dogs. <laughs> oh let's not get that hashtag going again. Uh, it's a mouthful but we got 280 characters now. So. <laughs> But uh, no, it is a dispute with Peter Snab because you know we do have these kind of things in a in a vacuum to a certain extent between the two of us. Uh, also, so what we do we do? In we'll this be spoilers. We'll hopefully be getting Rose back to guest on an episode sometime <laughs> soon. So maybe we can ask her. Mm. Um, do you know what we could do for now? We could place it at a draw for uh, Small Gods, and then if we get Rose back for our next episode, we can ask her and whatever she says. As tiebreaker. Yeah. Um, because I, I honestly, this is one of the few books where I really don't want to budge on because I very strongly feel you, that don't, should, you don't want to budge. But a few minutes ago, you, you said you'd be willing that's to. Just, that's because that's, that's because I figured you weren't going to budge. But I figure if we have like a third party kind of weighing in on it, that'll be a good solution for it. So you saw a flicker of weakness in my eye and then like <laughs> cravenly change what you were promised and I thought I was the one being like Trump earlier uh, now I see um, actually yeah I think that's a pretty decent compromise so mm. at the moment joint fort small gods and masquerade um, we're hoping to get Rose back on for uh, Hogfather too but the, episode, the episode after next uh, so she can kind of arbitrate on that then um, but for the moment we hope you've enjoyed this uh if you want to get in touch with us in the meantime you can find us by looking up radio Morpork on facebook or twitter you can find our website which has this list and all of our episodes at radiomorepork.wordpress.com you can email us at radiomorepork at gmail.com um, we're available if you're listening to us somewhere presumably if you're hearing this but we are available to listen on SoundCloud, on Podcast Addict, on iTunes, and a range of other streaming services. And if you like what you hear, uh, please give us a, a rating and a review on your streaming service of choice, even if it's a small one. It will be a big help for us to uh, get the message out there. Um, while we're also on, also on Reddit, on the, the Discworld um, subreddit. Uh, so again, if someone wants to get talking on those, uh, get talking with us on those, we we welcome it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all the... the housekeeping business stuff out of the way we'll see you next time for Feet of Clay uh, goodbye toodaloo yeah. I'm, uh, I'm just still really pissed off that um, Qatar beat America for the bidding of the 2022 World Cup because I had already trademarked the title Keep Yuppies with the Kardashians um, <laughs> you know in anticipation of them piggybacking on like the hype around an American hosted World Cup where it would be a show where I know they tried no lot of Keep Yuppies maybe like the series finale uh, Kim finally manages to do the Maradona 7 or something like that. <laughs>